instruction to our hearts, life to our flesh, healing to our bodies. Renew it, it will renew our mind, it will transform, oh God, our situations in the name of Jesus. We pray for Church 21. We pray for this house, Lord, that truly your blessing shall rest upon this house, oh God, and even upon our city, oh God. That you send us even as laborers, even into the harvest that you've prepared even for the city. That many will come to the knowledge of your grace, oh God. That if you're new to Church 21, you're going to see a bunch of different people coming in throughout the summer. And that's just normal. Uh, if you're not used to that, well, welcome to the new normal. Uh, we all went through COVID together, and so we got used to lots of new normals. That's not as bad as it was, right? So it's going to be great. We're doing a, uh, a two-part series. Last week, Jordan Weeks was here and preached on fasting. And I really hope that you were able to apply that immediately over the course of this past week. We aren't preaching uh, on these things so that you get more knowledge about fasting. You don't need a lot of knowledge about fasting. Um, we get to participate in it. So hopefully uh, you've partaken in that this week or are making plans to do so in the near future. And uh, this week we're wrapping up this short little series uh, with a, a thing on feasting. And maybe you'd like this a little bit more than, than fasting. But fasting and feasting should never be a part. And we'll see why uh, this morning. A, a few things just to note about this summer. Uh, there's this thing that happens. A student exodus takes place uh, every summer. And so there's a lot fewer students that are, that are here. And yet there's also lots of people visiting and are new. And so if you're part of Church 21, okay, if this is your home, uh, please continue to meet new people all throughout the summer long. They'll probably be, probably be here for one or two weeks, maybe max, uh, but embrace them, invite them into things, uh, allow them to be family while they're here in the city. Let's be great hosts while people are here in Montreal. Uh, I'm going to pray again, and we're going to uh, go to work on John chapter 6. Jesus, thank you that you're here. Thank you for the people who are here. I pray that you would fill us with the power of your spirit, the spirit that brought you back to life. I pray that you would bring uh, life to this room, that you would bring encouragement, that you would bring uh, repentance, that you would bring uh, new life to those who don't yet know you. I pray that you would bring healing to those who need to be healed. I pray that you would bring uh, rebuke to those who need to be rebuked. Because your rebuke is always uh, what's best. It's always for life. It's not to bring shame and guilt, but to bring freedom and forgiveness and life. And so would you cause us to receive whatever it is that you have for us today. We love you. Amen. All right, I just want to say this in, in advance before you get going. Uh, sometimes as you're listening to a sermon, uh, you might get bored. So sorry. Um, my kids are like, Dad, you're really boring. I'm like, well, so sorry. God chose me for you, boring dad. Uh, but secondly, you might sense something. You might sense like, I feel like it's more than just Dwight speaking these words. I, I feel like it's actually God speaking to my heart. And I want to say, if, if you sense that, pay attention to that. Pay attention. And, and you can even check out from the sermon at that point, And you can begin conversing with God quietly about what is it that you want to say to me about this. All right? I'll give you permission to do that as if you needed that anyway. All right, let's start out with this. Have you ever been to a feast? And I don't mean like a university potluck of like Lay's potato chips and a few steamies, right? But a real feast. Any of you? No one. I feel so, okay, one. I see two hands in the room. Oh, okay, now it's like, oh, everyone's doing it. All right, cool. So a real feast, a real feast. Uh, Canadians, I'm, I'm American and Canadian. 
And you know what? I, Canadians, we apologize a lot, don't we? I'm so sorry. And we should apologize for the way that we do Thanksgiving here, right? We should say, I'm so sorry if you thought you were getting an American Thanksgiving here. Because we don't know what day to eat. We don't know what we're supposed to eat. We don't know what day is off. We, like, we just don't know what we're supposed to do here. But it's fixed in the States. And so you're like, I don't want to learn a lot from the States. Learn about Thanksgiving from them. Okay, because on Wednesday it starts, work is done, right? Most people are done working. And then Thursday morning, you start cooking things. And all day long, things are being cooked. And it's not just wait to eat, it's you're eating all day long, all day long. By the time the main course comes, you're already pretty much full, but you're like, well, might as well keep eating. It's this feast all day long. And then you watch football, and people who don't even like football sit around and watch football. And you watch some weird parade with weird things, and you're always kind of hoping that one of these big balloons pops as it's walking down New York City so that you can be entertained, because it's not that entertaining. And then at the end of the day, just when you think it's time to go to bed, they pull out the pies. And there's this little piece in your stomach that you might not know that you have called the pie slice. And it's there. And somehow, after eating turkey and things all day long, you can manage to put like three pieces of pie in there. And then you just kind of fall asleep and people check your pulse to make sure you're still alive. And then Friday, guess what? You get up and you eat more. And it's just, it's just wonderful. It's, it's not just uh, devouring all the food. It's, it's metered throughout throughout four days, right? And this feast lasts for three to four days. And the aim of this feast is really to be with people, have good food, and celebrate, right? To be with people, to have good food, and to celebrate. We don't stop and do this often in our culture. We don't do it often enough. We don't just shut things down to celebrate because we're productive, we're type A, we're driven, we have tasks lists, we have phones beeping at us about what we're supposed to do because we planned it three months ago and we're a slave to our past selves three months ago and we feel like we need to do it. We don't stop to, to chill and remember and celebrate. And in the Old Testament, the Bible's broken up into two big chunks, Old Testament and New Testament. In the Old Testament, it is full of feasts and celebrations where the people of God would stop everything that they were doing, sometimes for weeks. For weeks. And they would celebrate who God is, what God has done, and who they were in light of, of who God is and what he's done. And so today what I want to do is I, wanna, I want us to stop. Don't think about what you're going to do later. I have so much to do later on. My day ends at about 9.30 tonight, okay? It started at 5.30, okay? I'm not thinking about that. We're going to stop together, and we're going to remember who Jesus is and what he's done. But specifically, we're going to look at one of the feasts. It was called Passover. And I want to look at two things as we look at Passover this morning. One I want to look at how Jesus reframed all of the feasts around him. And two, I want to look at a day where Jesus provided a feast. All right? So one, Jesus reframing all the feasts around him. And two, Jesus providing a feast. And I want to start with the second first. I'm a little confused today, okay? We're going to look at how Jesus provided the feast first. And here's the setting. We're going to be in John chapter 6, the book in the New Testament. If you don't have a Bible, but you have a phone, you could download an app. YouVersion app is really great. We also have hard copy Bibles. You can get up and grab one now if you want, or take one on your way out. It's our gift to you. But in John chapter 6, here's the setting of what's going on. 
uh, Jesus had been teaching all day long. He had a day like I'm having today, a 5.30 to 9.30 type of day. He'd been teaching all day long, and he's in the middle of nowhere, absolute nowhere. There's no Bustan. There's no McDonald's. There's no A&W. There's nothing to just grab a quick bite to eat. And the people are getting hungry, and they're nearing Passover. Listen to John 6, verse 4. It says, now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. So it was right there. Now, what is Passover? Passover was this annual feast that the people of God would celebrate remembering when God freed them from slavery in Egypt. They were an enslaved people. If you want to read this story later, you can go into the Old Testament and read the book of Exodus. It is an epic account of God freeing his people out from slavery. But the way that God brought them out of slavery was through the death of a lamb. So every household, God said, I'm going to pass over. I'm going to pass over the land of Egypt, and I'm going to to kill the firstborn in every house unless there's a blood of this lamb on, on the doorpost. And so every household would have killed a lamb. They would have put the blood on the doorpost, and then they had to eat the whole lamb. There could be no leftovers, and any leftovers had to be burned. And then that night, God provided redemption. He brought them out from slavery, and they went out into the wilderness. And through their rebellion, when they made it out in the wilderness, they ended up staying out in the wilderness for 40 years. Really long time. And then every day as they were out in the wilderness, God provided food for them. It was called manna. They, they, it means, what is it? They provided, God provided this heavenly food, this heavenly bread for them every single day. This is what they're just getting ready to celebrate and remember. And now they're hungry out in the wilderness, out in the middle of nowhere with Jesus. Let's see what Jesus does. In John 6, verse 5, it says, Lifting up his eyes, Jesus' eyes, then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, one of his disciples, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Verse 6 says, He said this to test him. For he himself knew what he would do. You see, Jesus sees the need. If you have needs today, Jesus sees your needs. He knows your needs. He's not waiting for an email. He's not waiting. I just found out over the course of this past week that, like, Gen Z doesn't really do email at all. That was staggering to me. If you're part of Gen Z and you do email, amazing. Like, keep us connected with millennials, all right? Um, But Jesus isn't waiting for a a DM. Jesus isn't waiting for your Instagram, like hungry and broke. Jesus don't know. He sees your need. He sees the need of these people, and, and he wants to provide a feast. But what he wants to find out first before he does anything is, what are my disciples gonna do? What's the heart of my disciples for these people? These people are all here, they they have a real need. Now, here's the thing about the disciples. Up to this point, if you would have read from John chapter 1 to John chapter 6, you would have seen Jesus do staggering things. And they've seen Jesus do staggering things. They saw Jesus turn a ridiculous amount of water into wine. They saw that. They saw that Jesus was able to do the impossible or maybe the improbable. They saw Jesus heal people, people with with diseases and sicknesses. They were healed immediately. They saw Jesus raise people from the dead. They saw Jesus turn a whole city that was against him toward him in John chapter 4. So surely these disciples are going to be like, Jesus, what are we going to do? 
how are we going to do it? I'm so excited to find out. But instead of turning to the, the miraculous, they turn very practical. John 6, verse 7, Philip answered him, 200 denarii. Now, that's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. It's over half a year's wage. 200 denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. So this is a huge crowd. Verse 8, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, well, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? They immediately turn practical. This is where we go too, right? We, okay, we need to feed people. What do we have in our fridge? What do we have in our freezer? What do we have in our cupboard, in the pantry? How are we going to feed these people? And the disciples get to the place through their practical means of, of needing to say, we can't do it. It's impossible. We can't feed these people. Andrew's like, I, I convinced this little kid with his Hebrew Happy Meal to come here and uh, this is all we have, but at least we, the 12 of us, 13 of us, have a snack. Maybe we could take the little boy's lunch for ourselves. I don't know what Andrew is thinking, right? But I'm, I'm thinking, how do I get some of that kid's lunch if I'm out in the middle of nowhere? They say, Jesus, it's impossible. But they're, they're not getting who Jesus really is. They don't yet fully understand the capabilities of the one that they're with. They don't. They haven't connected all the dots to realize that Jesus was actually the one who provided the food for their ancestors in the wilderness every single day. Every day. Millions of people being fed every day from this bread that's coming from heaven. Listen to what Jesus says of himself later on in John chapter 6. John 6 verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. That's confusing. And then it gets more confusing. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And that's because in verse 51, Jesus said, I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Confusing. It sounds like Jesus is saying, if you eat my flesh, you will have life. And they're like, we're becoming a cannibalistic movement. This is a very weird moment, right? This is where cults get formed. Leaders are like, drink the Kool-Aid, eat my body. It's like, I'm out. <laughs> I'm out. Verse 53, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, that's him, and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up in the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As a living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. So Jesus is giving away what he did years and years ago. Whoever feeds on this bread, meaning me, Jesus, will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. This is the best sermon ever. Right? You think about the like catchy sermon titles. Jesus is like, I'm going to call this one Eat Me. Right? Jesus is doing this in this type of setting. At the synagogue, weekly meeting. Jesus is teaching these things to people who have come in to hear and be blessed and edified. Imagine you show up one, they met on Saturdays on the Sabbath. Imagine you show up and some guy's like, come up and eat me. 
we're going to respond now by you taking chunks out of my flesh. The zombie apocalypse has come. But what happens when we eat? What happens when we eat? You eat food. What happens when you eat? Yeah, it goes in your stomach and you digest it. If it's poisonous, what happens? You die. Oh, okay. I'm, my, my girls and I, we're writing this little book. We're taking our time. But it's morbid bedtime stories. And every one of them ends in death. And that's the famous line. And then he died. Right? But you die. You eat poison, you die. That's how you keep kids from doing things that they shouldn't do. What happens if I drink this blue liquid? You die. But what really happens? No, you really die. You're like, oh, okay, I really won't do that. But what happens is you eat food. Have any of you gotten food poisoning before? That's fun, isn't it? How effective is it to say, stop being poisoned, stomach? Not super effective, right? It, it takes over your body, and you just kind of have to ride it out. And if it gets too bad, you have to go to the hospital and they have to help you. But the idea is that when you, die, when you put food into you, you lose control over what that food is going to do to you. And this is what Jesus is saying. To be a follower of Jesus isn't just that you show up on a Sunday and, you know, do a little hour and a half service. It's not just that you give some money or you're part of a city group or a change group or you do these things. Being a follower of Jesus is that you are a consumer of Jesus, that you take him in and you say, I'm relinquishing control, you're in charge, you do what you want, even if I don't like it. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. That's why Jesus kept saying to people, are you really sure you want to follow me? Jesus didn't manipulate people like, hey, I'll give you a little, I'll give you a cookie if you say a prayer. I'll give you a little medal if you want to invite me into your heart. Jesus said, you have to eat me. And if you eat me, you have no control over what happens. Do you really want that to happen? This is what Jesus is laying down in terms of what it means to follow him. That's what he wants for us. But how good are we at, at controlling our lives? We're not very good. The disciples in this instance, they, they see a need, and they can't buy enough lunch for everyone. They can't even provide for this crowd, for this meal. How are they going to care for them eternally? But Jesus says, I'll give them an eternal feast. You can't buy them lunch. I'll feed them eternally with what they really need. And here's what Jesus wanted his disciples to see and what he wants us to see. There are no limits with Jesus. There are no limits with Jesus. We have to take our little practical minds and when we're with Jesus, put them off to the side and say, limitless Jesus, what do you want to do? What is it that you want to accomplish? And, and we ditch what we think could happen based on our bank accounts or based on our strength or based on our gifts. And we say, what do you want to do? You working in me and through me, what do you want to do? That's the place where his disciples are to be. That's where he wants them to get to. There are no limits with him. Jesus saw God's resources, God's ability, and God's heart to care for this crowd. Do we? Why do we get practical so fast? Well, I can't do that. You ever sense something? I use sense a lot because I don't want to ascribe everything to the Spirit of God, but I believe that the Spirit of God does speak. You ever had a very strong sense that you're supposed to do something, but you rationalized it out because it wasn't practical? 
nah, I sh- not I should. I sense I need to go and do this thing, but if I go and do it, that's going to take like two hours, and I only have 20 minutes. But what are you actually going to do with those two hours? And whose two hours are those? Those are actually God's two hours. And if he's calling you into something, you can ditch the two hours of what you were going to do and do the two hours of what he wants to do because you're thinking practically about what you're going to bring to the table when you have no idea what he wants to bring. Why do we get practical so fast? Getting practical actually cuts us from faith. Our practicality cuts off our faith so often. We live by what we can see and what we can do. And God says, I want people that live by faith. I want people who believe that I can do more than you can ask or think. That brings me glory. I want people who are willing to try and take risks because maybe I might work. Caleb is one of my favorite uh, characters in the Old Testament. He's this 85-year-old guy that he spent the 40 years in the wilderness with the, the people of God. He was one of the ones who said, no, we need to go into the promised land. If you don't know all the aspects of the story, I'm so sorry. But the, the idea is that Caleb was ready to go. As an 85-year-old man, he finally enters into the promised land that they've been waiting for. And he, he sees a mountain. He says, I've been looking at that mountain for a long time. And he says, I'm going to go and take that mountain. They're like, Caleb, Caleb, the giants live there. And he says, well, maybe God will be with me. And he goes and he takes this mountain. How many 85-year-old men are running around the city being like, I'm going to take everyone to Mount Royal today. Let's go. Like, I'm, I'm ready. Not many. You know, we're like wheeling them up there, right? That's a good workout, by the way. Uh, helping people out, giving them community, wheeling them up the mountain. It's great. But our practicality cuts us off from faith because we look at us. We look in the mirror. And we see our limits. But God wants to smash that mirror. Don't make your faith about you. Don't make your faith about what you can do. And all your abilities. We search horizontally for a solution so often that can only come from above. So Jesus wants to give a feast. He wants to give a feast to these people. And he actually tells the disciples, you feed them. You feed them. This is amazing. John, uh, Luke, I'm going to bump back. Uh, the, the account of what we're looking at is in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So I'm just going to uh, back into the Luke one because it provides some other details that the John account doesn't. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we're to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. Now, other, um, other accounts say 5,000 men and women and children. Okay, So there's a lot of people. He said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. They did so and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves, gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. This is a key moment because Jesus could have just fed the crowd himself. Jesus could have said, all right, everyone close your eyes, put your hand into your pocket, and then pull them out. And they're like, oh, I have a fish head, cool, and like, I have this barley or rye bread or whatever it is. And, you know, Jesus could have done this magic act, but he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. He could have fed the crowd himself. But what he was doing is he's preparing his people for how ministry was actually going to get done. You see, ministry is always receiving from God to give away. It's never you providing something on your own. It's always receiving from him to give. Your little lunchbox can't do it, but by God's spirit, 
by the power of God's spirit, we can. We can because if you are in Jesus, you lack nothing today. You lack nothing. And I know that some of us are really apathetic to that. Some of the biggest things in life, we're like, oh, what's next? But in Jesus, you lack nothing. You will not find a better feast than him anywhere. You see, what we get to do is we get to bring our nothing. Hear this. You get to bring your nothing to Jesus, and he multiplies it. And you're like, yeah, 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 I remember multiplying zeros. Those were my favorite numbers to multiply. Zero times 100 is zero, right? But it's like, no, that's not how it works in God's economy. You bring your zero to him, and he multiplies it, and somehow it turns into addition. God's economy is so different. Listen to what happens uh, in Acts chapter 3. This is through his disciples who learned how Jesus provides. In Acts chapter 3, Simon and Peter and John were going up to the temple. In verse 1, at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth. I love this. Lame from birth. He's never known how to walk. I don't love that. All right. But I love what God is going to do. I know the end of the story. Okay. That's why I'm reading it. And the man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple. It is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. So someone who can't walk, sitting on the ground, saying, please give money, have compassion on me. He's, he does this every day. This is his full-time job. Verse 3, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And I like to think that some things might be funny. Like, what if Peter had a lazy eye? right? And he's looking at him in the lazy eye. I don't, that's not the point. I'm going to keep going. Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold. Peter learned, I have nothing. I have no silver and gold. But what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand, raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as one who sat at the beautiful gate asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. They learned, we have power in the name of Jesus. We have authority in the name of Jesus. I don't have money to give to you. I can't provide for these things. But in the name of Jesus, you can get up and you can walk. They saw Jesus doing this. And now they were moving in the same power and authority that Jesus had. And that wasn't just for the apostles. Jesus called all of his people to live in the authority that he has. And Jesus wants to provide, I believe that Jesus wants to provide a feast for our city. And how's he going to provide a feast for our city? Through you. Through you. You go feed them. And I hope you get the analogy. I'm not talking about like you giving them ramen or something. Like you giving them the spiritual goods that come from the kingdom of God. We're told to go and feed, but his way, not ours. There's some specific things about the feeding that Jesus did of this multitude in John 6 that I think we need to pay attention to. He said two things. Have them sit in groups of 50, or have them be in groups of 50, and have them sit down. 
In John chapter 6, verse 11, it says, Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So we'll get to that one in just a second. But why 50? What's magical about 50? I don't know. Maybe there's some, some meaning that, that we can't quite derive from the text perfectly. But the big idea is that you don't feast alone. How many of you have feasted alone and are like, man, that was the best Thanksgiving ever? Even the deepest introvert feels a little sadness, right, when there's not someone else to share that with. That we're meant to feast with others. And as these people were sitting in these groups of 50, they would have been saying, do you know where you got the bread? Did you see a bread truck coming? Did you see anyone fishing out here? Did you see these things happen? They would have been wondering and awing at what had taken place. How are we eating? How are we eating? They're recounting his work. You see, our feast should include sharing stories of Jesus and his grace and what he's done. The parable that, that Henry read for us earlier, I won't go back and, and reread that, but there were some people that didn't come to the feast of the master because they had their own feasts. One of them just got married. I can't come and be at your feast because I just got married. And I need to spend time with my wife. It's like, okay, well, this is God. God is inviting you into this, this feast. It's like, yeah, but my wife, my wife or my husband, my significant other, whatever. Your, your spouse is lame in comparison to God. And you're like, oh, I don't know if that's okay. No, that's okay. If you worship your spouse, you're doing them a significant disservice. Because you will always be displeased with them and one day you'll be furious at them for letting you down. Your relationship, whatever it is, cannot be deity-like. Don't miss out on something because of a relationship with someone, humanly speaking. You've, you've got this great feast, and you're, you're satisfied with your 30-second ramen noodles. You're like, no, this is good. This is fine. Also, people don't come because of their vocation or the property that they had acquired, their hobbies. These little feasts keep us from feasting on, on Jesus. And we keep Jesus as a snack. We bring him like that little, that little happy meal the boy had. And we're like, no, 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 when I get really hungry, really desperate, then I'll, I'll chew on Jesus a little bit. But just so he can make my marriage better, just so he can give me more property, or just so I can get that raise or promotion I was looking for. We treat Jesus like a pinata so often that if we just hit him the right way, he'll give us the candy we want. And that's not who he is. That's not who he is. And he will let you be disappointed by the things that you pursue in life so that you get him. Imagine the people, though, who are poor and blind and lame and crippled who were invited into that feast that Henry read. What stories did they have to tell? No one's ever invited me. I've never been able to find a party. I couldn't see my way there. I haven't been able to walk my way to a party. Now there's this master sending people out with wheelchairs and carrying me up on a throne and bringing me in and seating me at the master's table, not out in the other room, but in seats of honor. And you don't get into Jesus' feast without him healing you first. What stories did these people have to tell? You see, that was Jesus moving all throughout his earthly ministry. How many feasts and meals were changed because of what Jesus did? 
I was blind and, and now I see. Right? There was a whole religious group that were questioning this, this blind man who was made well. What, what do you mean you were blind? He's like, like, I couldn't see. You know, like, I couldn't see. Now I can see. I don't know how to explain it to you. You're like, yeah, but who is he really? He's like, I don't know who he is. All I know is that I'm healed and I have a story to share of who he is. People's lives change forever because of Jesus. Not in word. Jesus didn't walk around saying like, be blessed, my child. Be blessed. Right? We saw power move. We saw dead people get raised. We saw spiritual rebels of God become people who are planting his churches and saying, now take my neck for the name of Jesus. This is not a kingdom of words. This is a kingdom of power. And you belong to it. The second thing, though, have them sit in, in groups of 50, but have them sit. Jesus only provided for those who obeyed him. Jesus only provided for those who were seating. What Jesus is saying is, I, I don't want you to get the idea that you standing is somehow contributing to what you're, you're getting. Like, sit down. I don't want to sit down. You don't eat. That's a regular conversation in my household. <laughs> I'm like, oh, there's like trauma in my back, back of my mind, right? Sit down in your room eat forever, right? All this stuff. <clears throat> but Jesus only provides for those who obeyed him. You can't do it. So receive from him. This is the good news of the gospel. God doesn't help those who help themselves. That's, that's heretical. That's a lie. I don't care what Christian bookstore you saw it in. Shouldn't be there. God helps those who help themselves. God helps those who can't help themselves. God helps those who know that they can't help themselves. God helps those who come to him saying, I have nothing to bring to the feast. And he says, oh, I've been waiting for you. I want to give it all to you. We can't. He can. And so we are like his disciples. We're like the disciples in this story. Given to distribute. Given to distribute. We invite people to feast on Jesus. We invite people to feast on this one who said, come to me, eat my flesh and drink my blood and have life. But maybe you've been at this long enough You've been inviting people. No one, not many are coming. You've been using a lot of resources to be hospitable to people and bring them in your home or buy them meals or like buying them literal feasts. And you're not seeing many results. And so maybe you're starting to ask the question, well, what about me? What am I going to get out of this, Jesus? I thought that we were going to do this thing together and there was going to be all this fruit and all this amazing stuff. Imagine being his disciples in this text. They were hungry too. They were the only ones that found the little boy with some fish that they could beat up and, and take his lunch, right? They were the only ones with food in the whole place. And now Jesus is saying, don't feed yourself. You feed them. Watch them eat. Have you ever sat there and watched someone eat? You ever sat the road just behind first class on a really long flight that you're getting peanuts and pretzels and they're like, oh, this caviar is awesome. You know, and you're like, I wish I had long arms. You know, I can't reach through. And you, the smell just comes and you're watching people feast and it's frustrating because I wish I had that. And dang it, Jesus, why don't you provide for me? What are we going to eat? You, you've forgotten about me. 
Listen to chapter 6, verse 12 and, and 13. When they had eaten their fill, so the thousands, when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, now go gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. Okay, like this is a little too far, Jesus. We've watched him eat. Go get the crumbs, gather them together. Seriously? What about us? Verse 13, so they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. How many baskets were there? 12 baskets. How many disciples were there? 12. How much food did the disciples bring with them? Nothing. What did they have to leave with? Too much gluten. Too much food. They couldn't eat these baskets. They couldn't eat all that food. Jesus is teaching them something significant. You start with nothing, you bring me your nothing, and you leave with more than you can ever consume. And this isn't talking about your, your bank account. This is talking about the immeasurableness of, of, of who Jesus is. That his greatness is unfathomable, meaning we can't measure it. Ephesians, the book of Ephesians talks uh, about the reality that in the new creation, we're going to be exploring Jesus forever. Forever. Um, my wife and I will be celebrating 14 years uh, this, this coming week. And there's so many aspects. And I'm like, I didn't know that about you. Like, oh, it feels like continually exploring her. And like her desires and her her dreams and what she doesn't like, and I find those out often, right? Uh, it's like, oh, idiot moment again. But at some point, you know, you feel like, oh, I should know her. And there are new things. And I, and I speak with these older, more well-seasoned couples who've been married like 50, 60 years. Those are my heroes. And they're not just tolerating each other. Like, they're in love. And they're holding hands all the time and trying to figure out how to interlock things. And, you know, it's, it's wild. And it's like, what, what, is, what is the secret to this? It's like, well, like I keep trying to love my wife or my husband as Jesus loves the church, and I'm curious about that. I'm curious about that. That for all of eternity, we're going to keep learning new things about who Jesus is. There's not going to come a time in the new creation where we're like, well, that's it. You mind the depths of me, kids. Go to your new, new creation. And we're going to be amazed every time. Nothing about him is going to be boring. We're meant to consume Jesus. You can't ever finish him. He is inexhaustible provision, and he's never going to leave you. All right. Now, let's wrap this up with my first point. Jesus provides this feast, but then he reframes all the feasts, especially Passover, around himself. You see, what we do every week is we take what we call communion or Lord's Supper or Eucharist, whatever name you, you give to that. We remember him. And we remember him in this way because as Jesus was celebrating Passover, he reframed that meal, that feast, and in fact, all feasts around himself and what he was going to do. So let me go to Mark 14. And this is going to be a little bit rapid fire. That's okay. You're all bright and intelligent. I'm certain of it. Mark 14, verse 16 and 17. This, the disciples set out. This is the night that Jesus is going to be betrayed and killed. 
the disciples set out, went to the city, and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover, so the whole meal. And when it was evening, he came with the 12. Now, Passover, you can research this later in more depth, but Passover basically had four parts to it. And there was wine after each part. So the first part was the, the gathering was actually blessed, and then they would have wine. And then the second part, and these are, these are long parts, okay? This is really a feast. But the second part is the youngest in the room would ask the host five questions. Why is this night different than every other? And they would recount the story of how God delivered his people out from slavery. Then they'd have some wine. The third part was a benediction. And this is where they're really getting into the meal and tasting the work of God. And then they would have the wine. And then the fourth part of the meal, this is where Jesus actually interrupts Passover with himself. This is where Jesus says, you know that lamb you've been eating every year that delivered you? Well, I'm actually that lamb. I'm the lamb that's entering in to finalize this redemption thing once and for all. So in the middle of, of Passover, this would have been surprising to them. In verse 22 of Mark 14, as they were eating, Jesus took the bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. He took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. This would have been the fourth cup to the meal. When he, gave, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Jesus says, you've been eating that Passover lamb for so many years. You don't have to eat that lamb anymore. I, I am that lamb. Eat me. Consume me. Take me. This, this meal was a meal of surrender. That there's a new promise that's being made. Everything is getting shifted. We're moving from the old covenant into a new covenant that God is making with his people, not in the blood of lambs or goats, but in the blood of Jesus Christ. That a new promise is being made. And as we take this meal this morning, this meal that was instituted, reframing the Passover, it's a meal of dependence. It's a meal proclaiming, I, I'm bringing nothing. Right? We don't ask you to bring your own bread and then come up to the table and take your own bread and bring it back. You bring nothing to this table. This is a reminder that you bring nothing and you get everything from him. It's the opposite of religion because religion says if you do enough good things and don't do enough bad things, then maybe God's going to give you something nice. Maybe you'll get a better house or maybe whatever. <clears throat> That's religion. That's manipulation. The gospel is you can't do it. You can't get forgiveness on your own. You can't get freedom on your own. You can't get a, a new family on your own. But I've done it for you. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And when we remember, which we're going to do this morning, when we remember, four things happen. Four things should happen. Okay, number one, we remember and rejoice. So as you take the bread and, and wine this morning, remember and rejoice at Jesus' work. That he went to the cross for me, and he raised from the dead for me. I was talking to um, one of my daughter's friends this morning. Uh, she's a, a nine-year-old. She spent the night last night, and she wants to get baptized. And we were talking through what baptism is, and, uh, and she says, yeah, Jesus died on the cross for everyone. I'm like, but what about you? She says, oh, yes, for me. I'm like, yeah, that's what's important, right? It's not just for everyone. It's for you. That Jesus' work on the cross and, and in his resurrection is for you, the individual. So we remember and rejoice at that. Secondly, we remember and rejoice for what he will accomplish. 
when Jesus comes back, there's going to be a far better feast than a little piece of bread and a little wine. We're going to get to feast with him face to face, and everything is going to be right on that day. We spent a lot of time in Revelation highlighting that in past series that we did. Third, we remember and rejoice that he did this for us all. So in the same way that I was processing baptism with my daughter's friend this morning, it said, yep, but he did do it for all of his people as well. And so it's not just you as an individual, your little relationship with Jesus, it's us. And so as you come and take this this morning, look around. Like, look around the room. And if someone looks at you, don't think that you're singing poorly, okay? Be a little bit more secure, right? Often it's like, oh, I don't know, why are they looking at me? They're looking at you to be reminded that Jesus did this for you as well. Fourth thing, we remember and rejoice. This is important. We remember and rejoice that we, at this moment, are full of the feast and we're sent to offer it to all. You lack nothing in Christ. You lack nothing. Jesus, during one of the festivals, he stood up and said, come to me. Listen, John chapter 7. Let me read this. John 7, 37 and 38. Jesus did some very awkward things. I love it. Um, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, imagine being at a big banquet. Everyone's kind of quiet, you know, doing their thing. Anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. This means that it's not just for you, it's for others. You're full of the feast and you're meant to go offer it to others. I don't know if you've ever tried to contain a river. It doesn't work very well. Right? It it goes somewhere else. This river isn't meant to be contained inside of you. It's meant to be for other people. You are not powerless. You are not powerless. You are not the summation of your capabilities or your degrees. If you're a child of God, you're full of the Spirit of God. You lack nothing today. And you have authority in Jesus' name by the power of the Spirit to go and do work that he wants you to do. He's not going to give you power and authority to start a, um, a, a new criminal chain of whatever, right? It's like, Spirit, I'm fasting and praying that you make me head mafia boss or something. It's like, probably not going to help you do that. Definitely won't help you do that. But Jesus, I want to reach my neighborhood. Jesus, I want to see my, my, my family love you. Jesus, I want to I love my wife like you love the church. I want to serve people like you came alongside them, Jesus. I want to pray for people to be healed, Jesus, like you prayed for them to be healed. Like, I want to enter into all those things, even the awkward moments, even the ones where it's like, well, this is strange. Just going to give awkwardness a big hug and go for it because maybe he might do it. We stop from doing things because we're not sure if it's going to work, but maybe he might do it. So enter into that. Enter into that. And I'll end with this. That night where Jesus uh, changed Passover and made it about him. Listen to what it says in verse 25 of Mark 14. Truly, truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. That was a part of the meal, the Passover, where they rehearsed that God says, I will take you as my people. Jesus says, I'm fasting from this drink 
until all my people, every tribe, tongue, nation, language, people are in front of me, then I'll lift the glass. Redemption is done. I purchased all my people. I didn't miss one of them. They're all here. I can finally take that drink. You are my people. I have delivered you. That's what we get to remember and rejoice. I will take you as my people. And that's good news because redemption is still happening right now. So how do we respond to this? Well, we went from an annual feast, a feast of Passover, to now being able to feast on Jesus every day. Do, do you feast on him every day? Don't, don't do a verse a day thing. Don't do a, a three-minute prayer thing like God is interested in your Google task. Feast on him. Be obsessed with him. Figure that out. I don't have to teach you how to binge watch a series. Because you're like, oh, this is really good. Have you taken enough time to consider who Jesus is? So much so that you can binge on him. And you end up falling asleep because you can't read anymore. You can't pray anymore. You can't do anymore. And you just end up falling asleep. And I remember as a new follower of Jesus, I prayed a lot. I prayed a lot. Jesus changed my life in radical ways. And I felt so guilty. I felt so guilty that I would fall asleep praying. I'm like, oh, I wish I just need to get my act together. And I shared that with my pastor one time. His name is Mark, and his son's name is Mark. Very creative. Um, Mark Jr., though. Mark Jr., right? And, and I was telling him my frustration. Like, I'm, I can be intense at times, okay? And I'm like, I want to figure this out. I need to figure this out. I need to be a better Christian. And he said, oh, hold on. He said, the other night, my son was talking to me, and I had him in my arms. I think he was three or four at that time. And he was talking to me and telling me a story, and then just all of a sudden, he fell asleep. He's like, do you know what I didn't do? Wake up! Some of you are like, whoa, I was sleeping. <laughs> Different story, wasn't it? You wake up! Finish your story, boy! You know? I wanted the good part. Did he die or not? He died. <laughs> he said, I, I look at my son and I find such delight in him. And then I carry him up to his bed and I put him in bed and tuck him in and give him a kiss and walk away. And he said, if I feel that way toward my son, you don't think that God delights in you falling asleep talking to him? Like God wants for you to binge him. God wants for you to consume him. God wants more. And you don't have to go to some feast somewhere. He's available to you right now. You don't have a dead lamb. You have a living one who offers a feast right now. So who's willing to come? Who's willing to come? Um. I really believe that, that, especially last week, as we preached the sermon last week, that there was one woman in particular that I was supposed to be praying for, and she came for, for prayer during the service. I haven't followed up with her yet. Um, but I really believe that, that some of us hold on to things that, that we need to let go of, and that some of you will let go of those things because of prayer. And I want to pray for you this morning. So I'm going to be in the back, and I want to pray for you, and I want some of you won't come for prayer or are shy to come for prayer because you're like, ah, oh, that's going to show that I'm needy. Yeah, absolutely. And those who need prayer that don't come are declaring, I don't need prayer. I'm independent. That's not what God is looking for in the heart. So I want to invite you, if you need healing today, well, come and, and be prayed. Maybe God would heal you. If you need to be delivered from something that you feel like has a hold on you, 
Well, come and pray, and maybe God would release you today. You need freedom. Well, come and be prayed for. You want new affections for Jesus. You want to binge on him. You want to consume him, but you don't want it to just be a fad. Well, come and be prayed for today. Maybe you're not yet a follower of Jesus. Come and be prayed for today. He will give you new life. And then we get sent to, to minister to people in our city. We, we talked about fasting uh, last week. Would you, would you please consider a day in the next week that you would fast for an individual who doesn't yet know Jesus? And all day long as you're feeling like the hunger and the, oh, it doesn't feel so nice and, oh, I really do like Big Macs, I didn't know, or whatever it is, take that hunger and say, God, would you give my neighbor, a coworker, a friend, or whomever, would you give them a hunger for you? Would you give me an opportunity to speak with them? And then follow that up. Meet with them. Ask them questions. Maybe God might actually do what you're fasting and praying about. Fast for them to want to feast on him. And if you find your heart isn't feasting on him, well, fast. Fast and say, God, I want you more than I want my Netflix, than I want my food, than I want my hobbies, than I want my stuff. Like, I'm going to set that aside because I, I want to stare at you. And it's going to be uncomfortable and it's going to be awkward and it won't feel amazing all the time, but, but he'll meet you. He'll meet you and he'll be far better than whatever you could go after. So I'm going to pray and then, uh, and then we'll respond. Jesus, thank you that you're here. Thank you that you are the better feast. Thank you that we can feast on you and find all our delight and sufficiency in you because of what you've done. Thank you that you give us a visceral reminder of that, which we're going to do in just a minute. You, you accomplished that. This is all about you, Jesus. It's not about us. It's not about our church. It's not about our performance. It's not about our ideals. It's about you. I pray for hearts to be reoriented around dependence on you. I pray that you would humble the proud in this room. I pray that you would, for those who are hurting, that you would provide deep comfort for them. I pray that, um, that this would be a place of prayer, uh, that, that you, would, you would give gifts of healing to people uh, and that those gifts would uh, be able to, to function this morning well uh, according to your will. I pray that there would be great delight and I pray for repentance, that people would turn af- away from the feast that they've been going toward that are, are, are anti-you and that they would turn back to you. It's not, it's not a big ordeal, it's a turning, and that this morning we, we would turn from these things. So we love you, and we, we really need you for everything, Jesus. We need you to provide the feast. Amen.